I think Lee asked me to speak around race and reconciliation. And hopefully we will arrive there <laughs> at the end, at the end. My, my wife asked me this morning, but don't forget about hope, speak about hope. So hopefully we, we <laughs> she was like, hope, where's the hope? I'm like, yeah. Um, so I want to share something which I hope you would um, listen to, but also critique. Um, so, I'm a poet, I write poetry, I, I love to write, I, I, I see the world through words as well as numbers, but I love words a lot more so than numbers. And, and words mean a lot in terms of words can heal, words can bind, but also words can injure. Um, I, so I'm hoping that some of the words today would make sense. I mean, you're a theological student, so you should know more than I do. I'm not a theological student. Um, in many ways, I'm speaking as someone who is still learning, who is on a journey. But I'll try and tell a lot of stories today. Um, so to bring to bear um, part of what I'll be discussing. So I've called this cheap grace, poor witness. And cheap grace, I'm aware it's, it's a word that has meaning. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke about cheap grace, grace that has been cheapened, something that is cheap. And, but also for me, the word witness in this context has to do with what it means to bear, to represent um, the character of God. But actually, how does our understanding of grace allow us to represent a gracious God? Of course, it's again a theological critique of diversity and the cult of identity politics. Again, I will still arrive at race and reconciliation, but I think it's important to, to look at race within a context of diversity. It's a, it's a word that is gaining more currency within um, policy makers. It's a word that is gaining currency within um, our social context. And I think for me, it's, there's something around being sensitive to some of the masks that white supremacy tends to wear. And I would be trying to claim today that in many ways, diversity also could be another mask. And we have to learn how to unmask. Uh, so, what's the next slide? Wow, I need to get this. Mm -hmm. All right, so I use the word cheap grace and as a term that is borrowed from Bonhoeffer's work. He speaks about cheap grace means grace sold on the market, like cheap jackets, wears. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, the consolations of religion are thrown away at court price. So Bonhoeffer is criticizing or critiquing an understanding of grace that reduces the magnitude of the wonder of grace to something that is transactional. Also, he says cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Um, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. I think within his own context, he's referring more to Christian discipleship. What does it mean to say, I follow the living Christ? And within his context, he sees this as something that is distorted something that is in the marketplace. 
I use the word cheap grace slightly much more differently um, in today's workshop. I, I see it as both a symbol. So for me, cheap grace becomes a symbol, something that points to another reality, something that, ref that represents truth, but is not truth. So for me, to see diversity or the claim that it is the solution to white supremacy is to see that actually it is actually a symbol. It is a symbol because it is masking a social reality of inequality and exclusion. It is also a symbol because it has an ethical paradigm, which means it makes a claim. In the same way within the Christian tradition, grace makes a claim that God has forgiven. That is the claim. Is that true? We have to petition God and ask Him actually. Is it true that you have forgiven? Yes, I have forgiven. What is the proof of your forgiveness? The cross of Jesus Christ. In other words, even the notion of grace demands that God is held accountable for the gift that he's offering. So in the same way, if we can question the grace of God, we should question diversity as a logic, but also as a public good. Something that is good for all of us. Everyone here, be diverse. It has market value. But again, cheap grace is also transactional it's interesting bonhoeffer sees grace as something that is sold i'm going to take that quote back so you can give me a bit of a picture sold on the market which means there is market value i think about employers in today's world of hr there are many economic benefits of being diverse you get an award you do get an award there are diversity businesses where, what, what do you do? I'm a consultant. For diversity, I'm like, what do you actually do? Don't worry about that. <laughs> Don't worry about that. Let's just, let's try and increase the numbers of folks who look like you here. Um, <laughs> and it, it, it's, it's not to belittle these emphasis, but it's to say as, from a theological perspective, we need to be sensitive to the marketplace. The marketplace. He says, these are sold. Sold. I think about Jesus Christ turning the tables in a marketplace. In a marketplace. And society in its very nature is a marketplace of exchange. Exchange of ideas, exchange of conversation. But in the context of race and reconciliation, it is important that we are attentive to the marketplace. More so as Christians. But also I look at cheap grace as a substitute for prophetic witness. So it is something that you can exchange. It is not the real thing. In the same way within Bonhoeffer's time, he was criticizing a form of discipleship that says, I follow Jesus, but I, so I follow money. I follow Jesus, but also I follow Hitler. I follow Jesus, but also I follow Aryan supremacy. I follow Jesus, but I follow me mom. <laughs> Potentially. And it's this idea that actually the notion of cheap grace implies that there is a substitute 
There is an original and there is a counterfeit. There is that which has substance and there is that which claims to have substance. And I think in seeing that cheap grace can be understood as a substitute, it implies there is a sense in which we need to be sensitive to the prophetic sensibilities of Scripture. That human dignity is not for sale. Human dignity is never for sale within the prophetic tradition. I mean, we, we see an instance when Esau is offered porridge. <laughs> Maybe old porridge from Scotland. And he trades that for his birthright. But also we know that your birthright is also something that you cannot sell. It is a reality in itself. And I think in seeing cheap grace as a substitute for prophetic witness, it becomes how do we as Christians speak around questions of inequality, discrimination, racial injustice, exclusion, in a way that allows us to become prophetic. Not polite. Uh, you know, I, I love my wife a lot. <laughs> and I, 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 <laughs> I often tell my wife, darling, I struggle sometimes in England. I struggle. I struggle with the idea that being polite is more important than being truthful. And she's like, I love you, darling, I love you. <laughs> but there's something about being prophetic that is removed from being polite. There is something that about being prophetic that requires politeness to be parked on the side. And I think in being aware of this sensibility that there is room for prophetic witness, but prophetic witness is always compromised by cheap grace. Again, I just want to put back the words of Bonhoeffer, which I think are important. He says the preaching of forgiveness without repentance. Forgiveness without repentance. Forgiveness. Hey, forgive, yeah, 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 he was racist, but just forgive him, pray for him. Yeah, I will, I'll forgive him already, but actually he needs to repent. Uh, don't, don't use that word, it's a big term, you know. <laughs> but it's this notion that you can have forgiveness, reconciliation, without repentance. I mean, there is no evidence within the prophetic tradition, there is no evidence of such form of worship being acceptable to God. There is no evidence in the Bible that you can preach forgiveness without repentance. Perhaps there is if you exclude Amos, Hosea, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Zechariah, Malachi, because the prophetic tradition breeds, 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 breeds. The question of how do you turn around? How do you turn around? How do you turn around? And I think in being aware that to understand the question of racial justice, 
you can't just tell folks, just forgive, you know, just, uh, yeah, just, I want you to forgive him, let's pray for the, I, I know Jesus says forgive, I know he says that, but I think cheap grace has a way of marginalizing the emphasis on repentance. Cheap grace has a way of cloaking itself in a liberal pretense that says actually what is most important is a stable economy, economic growth, a bit of politeness, and tea. <laughs> so it is market driven, if I can use that term. It's, it is commodified. It is a way of understanding reality that places value on economics. And I think diversity has to be held suspect because it is a market-driven policy that has rewards. I see all kinds of rewards. I, I go to someone's office, winner of diversity at the world. I'm thinking, what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? Christmas is coming. It's going to see a lot of Christmas inclusion. I'm thinking, what? How do we understand diversity within a market-driven economy that has no room for the human? The human voice, the human story, but also the consequences of the violation of human dignity. But also, cheap grace is value-laden, which means it has a way of reordering priorities. Because in claiming that the most important thing is diversity, you have erected a hierarchy of order in which having brown faces, white faces, is important. That in itself has an ontological assumption. I said actually, this is valid. We are a diverse organization. Not we are a just organization. Not we are a transparent organization. Not we are a meek organization. But we are diverse, you know. Come and, come and have a look. It's a bit of a rainbow down here. <laughs> oh my Lord, have mercy. <laughs> it is important to understand a theological critique on diversity has to begin from a place of suspicion, not affirmation or celebration. Why? Because in the same way, we have to say, who said? Who said it is good? That was the question in the Garden of Eden. Who said you should not eat? Who? Who? Did God say? Which means there is a need to be sensitive to why is there an emphasis on an idea that is removed from the questions of justice. You know, I, I was reflecting recently, if you look at many HR policies, I don't know what's your HR policy in Trinity, uh, but I, I'm sure it's a good one. Uh, Leah, I think so, don't I? It's a good one. Um, I would trust. But you, you don't see the word justice in them. You don't see accountability in them. We are a diverse organization. I'm thinking, yeah, what does that mean? You don't see the word equity. 
annual leave is guaranteed. Maternity leave is guaranteed. That's good. That's good. That's good. But how do we see beyond the mask? And in context matters, I want to speak in the context of racial prejudice and and inequality. And I think I want to try and frame everything I say here within this context. That there is a sense in which this is a universal condition. It's interesting, in Cuba, in 1956, post-Cuban revolution, Fidel Castro declared that we have abolished racism in Cuba. It is still state policy in Cuba. You don't mention race in Cuba. It's state policy. Because the assumption being that it doesn't exist here. It's in the backyard. It's in the U.S. South. In many ways, the language of denial has a way of actually increasing the reality. It is one thing to to pretend that it doesn't exist here. This is Trinity. (laughs) It doesn't exist here. It's Trinity. It doesn't exist here. This is Her Majesty's land. (laughs) With all due respect as well. But there is a sense in which the language of denial has a way of affirming that which is trying to hide. So I begin by saying the context in which I'm referring to is prejudice. And I use the word prejudice intentionally. I am very suspicious of the word unconscious bias. That's a bit of a bullocks. Because unconscious bias implies I am not intentional. And bias has a way of reducing the magnitude of the violation of human dignity. It's just a bias. It's not, it's not personal. I didn't give you that job. Why? I was unconsciously biased. So you stole my opportunity. Stole. Legal. Consequences. Law. Bias. A bit of psychological. A bit of, um, it's, it's, it's internal. It's self-reflection. It's like I'm praying <laughs> to myself. And to situate diversity in the context of prejudice allows me to think critically around what are the structures that produce exclusion. I am interested in exclusion. I was in Southampton for a wedding, my, my wife's friend's wedding. And I, my wife rings me. I've booked a bed and breakfast. The woman is wonderful. She's so nice. She's so lovely. I was suspicious. I didn't say anything. I said, oh, darling, yeah, I'll be there shortly. I'll be there. So I arrive close to 1 a.m. There was a disruption in, in London. So my, I was delayed hours, hours. I arrive at the door. It's close to 1 a.m. Now, mind you, I am paying. I'm a customer. I open the door, put my bag on the side. I go for a cup of tea. She wakes up and she sees me. 
And she's afraid because she spoke to Katie. Katie sounds different. But also Katie looks different. And she's terrified. And I'm like, good morning. And she goes and she turns off the kettle. Put out of. Go to bed. Like a child. Prejudice. And I have to wrestle with what does this mean for me? And I decide eventually to give her back the keys and to sleep outside. Now, was that the right thing? Darling, Blake, no, no, it's a bit too extreme. But I'm like, darling, there's dignity. Why should I be there where I'm not wanted? I'm paying. And I began to analyze. She didn't ask, how was your journey? Can I join you for a cup of tea? How do you have it? But hostility, harassment, hostility. That example illustrates what prejudice could look like. I think about a lady, so I work in Leeds with the Roma community. I think about a lady who was pregnant, six children looking for a house in a place called Hair Hills in Leeds. And we are going from door to door agency. Do you have a four bedroom house for who? No, 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 no. And we walk the whole street, the entire street. Now, I'm being honest, we walk the entire street. It dawned on me. Prejudice is generational. Because the main discrimination was not actually against this woman alone. The unborn. Because she was pregnant. In essence, prejudice has a way of creating generational inequalities. Generational. And it dawned on me, from the belly, this child has been told there is no room for you. And I thought about Jesus being born outside. Because there was no room for him. I hope you're aware of that. There wasn't an NHS for him. There wasn't. There wasn't. There wasn't. No, no, there wasn't. There was no room for him. And I think to understand the relationship between inequality and prejudice is significant. Because if you are not interested in the relationship between prejudice and inequality, you will observe it as it reproduces itself historically. Which is why I think it's important to sort of understand is diversity intended to deal with prejudice. If it is, then perhaps it can be a public good. Perhaps. Is diversity intended to deal with inequality? If it is, then it can be a public good. But is it intended to deal with this context? Or is it a liberal pretense to massage the ego? You see, we are now a diverse organization. Just come on, work for me. <laughs> I like the way you look. Just turn up. I said, no, 
dignity is not for sale. It's never been for sale. And I think understanding the reality of disparities that exist. Now that's the London Underground, Mind the Gap. I think it's prophetic. It reminds you every time, Mind the Gap. It is prophetic. Mind the Gap, there are disparities in the material conditions of people living in Her Majesty's land. But what does it mean to be sensitive to some of the disparities? Proportion of school people in 10 years who are looking for school mail. It kind of shows you. Now, I'm more of a word person. I'm not a statistician. Uh, I think words, one word is enough. Because sometimes in statistics, you want more. 10,000 are dying, and it's bad. No, no, one death. The Bible says that Jesus wept when Lazarus died. That was one person. That was just one person. He said, I'm too moved. So I, I, this is good, but I, I would be more careful of statistics. Again, I'm aware within the diversity market, there's a lot of statistics. Four in ten out of this, three in ten out of this, two out of nine. I'm thinking, that sounds good. Have you wept over one? Because if you have not wept over one, don't tell me. No, no, please. Mind the gap. So there are gaps between us. There are gaps between us. I knew when I spoke to my wife that that woman treated her differently, that mine would be different. Uh, during my honeymoon, I was in a, we arrived at the airport. She goes through. I'm detained at the airport. My honeymoon. <laughs> my honeymoon. I asked him, why? My wife has gone through. And mind you, being a Christian means I have heard certain words that says, whatever God joins together, <laughs> let nobody separate. But racism separates people. So there are disparities. And we need to have prophetic sensibilities. Which means sometimes you sing the blues, sometimes you weep. It's more than just statistics. These are people. And I think for me, one thing we need to try and ensure we are doing in our understanding of racial disparities is bringing a language of weeping to the discourse. Bureaucratic language is dangerous. It's the one policymakers speak. Four in ten out of this, this, the, 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 the. It's, it's policy making. It's no prophetic witness. And I think prophetic witness lies outside of the scope. Because people have dignity. And people are not numbers. It's interesting within the Nazis, the way they, they, they reduced being to a number in the Holocaust. That is statistics. I would argue, at least for me, it's a form of statistics. That is a form of statistics that reduces the gravity, the magnitude of a human wonder. Number two, three, six. But diversity allows us to move on targets. In the next 10 years, 20% blacks in this place. Numbers. 
in the next 30 years, 40 women in the high places. Numbers. Prophetic witness moves and sways to the rhythm of human dignity. What does it mean to be a number? <coughs> to be talked about as a number. And I think for me, in, in emphasizing the gaps, the disparities, we need to hold the tension of both. Yes, there is a reality in which people experience disparities. I think the prophetic witness is weeping in response to the mature conditions. Yes. White supremacy. Uh, I'm aware of time, so I've got to speed up. I've got a bit of time, don't I? Okay, wonderful. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So I, I think in terms of white supremacy, I personally tend to see racial inequality and prejudice through the lens of white supremacy than racism. I always tell my wife, is white supremacy? They might mean the same thing, potentially. But because I, I think white supremacy has a form that is universal. And it has a form that also is both particular in that the question of power, privilege, conflates. Power, privilege, to exclude that which is different. And the conflation historically has rested on the idea of black criminality, black inferiority. In other words, a person has the burden of proof to prove their innocence. What are you doing here? Uh, I'm just strolling around. Are you sure? <laughs> uh, I'm just going for a walk. <laughs> what are you doing here? Yeah, I'm just... The other day I was walking back home after work and the police van stopped. How are you doing? I'm fine. Good to see you. Can I give you a lift? I'm like, yeah, that's good. And he gave me a lift. But I thought about it. Wait. What happened? Racial profiling. I thought you were being kind. Potentially. But it's the idea that there is a burden of proof. That I have to prove that I am not a criminal. When people say migrants are stealing our jobs, the idea of stealing implies criminality. It means you have to now be a good migrant. I'm working, I'm not claiming benefits. Hallelujah. Because you have the burden of proof, not the other side. And what does it mean to experience life? As a perceived criminal, I, where I work at, the, I work at the Leeds University Union. When I go to the shop to buy things, sometimes I wait for my receipt. I wait for my receipt. I care about the environment, but I know if I walk out of that shop without a receipt, that if it beeps, it won't be you. I have to take my receipt, oh, yeah. put it in my pocket again, because the notion that if It wouldn't be you. 
What does it mean to live under the burden of this myth of black criminality, but also that you're somehow inferior? You're somehow inadequate. You're somehow less than. And to wrestle with this form, and this is why I hold diversity suspect most times, it doesn't address the underlying assumptions of racial prejudice, the logic that says actually you're somehow inferior. Because when you drink your tea, you don't hold your tea like this. Madam, you hold your tea like this. <laughs> there is a normative gaze of what is normal. There is a normative gaze that says, actually, it is normal to go to walks. Hold your dog. It's normal to walk. And that's in which the normative gaze defines what is human. And that is what is most dangerous. That the normative gaze defines what is human. Because if it is normal to go to walks on Sunday evenings, if you're not, somehow you might just be less than human. Just a little less. A little less, just, it's not, not too, too bad, but it's a tiny bit, a tiny bit. So the assumption that the normative gaze is the dominant one. It's the one that is affirmed culturally. Implies that somehow, whatever that is not normative becomes an expression of inferior. It's good, but it's... It's, it's not the same. And I think in understanding white supremacy and its forms, I have to think about the question of power. Because to assume something is normal implies that actually there is power to make that choice. If this is the right way to arrange this room, it implies that actually that you have power to define a right way in which a room should be ordered. So white supremacy, in its form, it's linked to questions of power, more so than race. I tell my wife many times, the question is power most times. Race is an illusion. Who has power? And what are they doing with power? So I, I think for me, in this context, I say, trying to wrap up shortly, I find that to use diversity and identity politics as a lens and a corrective measure has a flaw because it presupposes that the primary reason for your experience is your identity. And in many ways, that is both simplistic because it evades the particularities of your experience. And I find more and more that 
diversity becomes a liberal pretense to erase the question of equal opportunity under the law, if I may add. And this is in many ways more interesting in a country like Britain. Britain has historically been and still remains aristocratic. They're dukes, they're baronesses, they're lords, my lords, all of that is aristocratic language. The nature of British democracy in itself is defined by two houses, the House of Commons, the common man, and the House of Lords. So in a society that has this sickness of stratification, how can diversity address it? Can it? And I think for me the question of equal opportunity makes more sense as a response to social stratification. More importantly, what I find more concerning is the nature of diversity as an expression of arbitrary power. Power that is not accountable. Power that is not transparent. And in this regard, there's something about diversity being a way of saying, we're going to hire 20 black people this year. What about the 1,000 who applies? It's better you say we're going to look at each application in a way that scrutinizes the merits than to give an arbitrary number statistics to reduce human beings. So I find from a theological perspective there is a critique around a reductionist view of exclusion. Because every act of exclusion has a logic interest and power. So logic and inner logic, interest, material conditions, power, institutional mechanisms. So the reason I am here, logic workshop for this week, interest to share some for the students, power, go to train last night. I got it. The train is the vehicle. So in the same way, we need to ask ourselves, what is the logic of exclusion? In whose interests? In whose interest? Now, Leah thought it would be in your interest for me to come here today. But that's still an open question. Is it really in their interest? <laughs> we have to ask that. Or is it my interest to show myself up a little bit, show up my shirt, and like, <laughs> potentially, I've got to live within that. I've got to live with that. <laughs> so leave work, get on a trip to Bristol, take pictures around. I'm in Bristol. In whose interest are people being excluded? Who is benefiting? But also, who has the power to exclude? So, I would rather see a Christian response focusing on what is the logic? What is the logic? And it, it's interesting because I've found many times that the logic of 
diversity as a cloak of generosity often has a logic of inferiority in it. Yeah, I'm just going to give him the job. Yeah, yeah. Don't apply for it. But I want to... No, no, no. Don't apply for it. But why? I want to apply. No, no, don't worry. I'll give you the job. That's scary. That haunts me. No, no, don't worry. Just come in. Smile for the camera. Thanks. <laughs> Take the box. There is a logic. Oh, don't worry. Don't apply for the job. Just turn up. <laughs> why? Nah, you don't need to. You don't have to worry about that. We love you, you know. The logic often implies a measure of inferiority, and it's part of liberal anxiety, if I might add. But also, it erases. It raises the question of opportunity. I think about British universities. Thousands of Chinese students. Brilliant. First class. Time to get jobs. They're wrestling. I've just been applying, but I had a guy, he told me my face did not fit into the organization. It broke my heart. He told me, from China, he told me my face did not fit in. I could not wrestle with that. He was saying, I've tried to be as religious, I can't still fit in. Says my face. You can't change your face. You shouldn't change your face. It's a gift. But he says my face cannot fit. Crush me. Equal opportunity remains a myth as long as diversity is on power. But if you substitute this for justice, it looks a bit different. It looks a bit different. Where are you from? China? You look different, I know. It's about my application. It's not about how I look. Is it good? It's about my competence. You get the job. Thank you. But it's not a favor. Yeah, let's, let's just give him the job. No, why would you give him the job? It's arbitrary power. So I think for me, there's something around arbitrary power. Power that is not accountable. Power that is not transparent. Power that allows you to give and take at will. Reminds me of King Henry. Alright, so where does this leave us as we wrap up? I think what I hope to suggest is can we look at dignity theologically as a better response to prejudice and inequality? Dignity affirms the intimate details of personhood, including differences and identity. Um, the Bible says that God has counted the hair. Oh, that's dignity. Oh, 
Which means if you have no hair, it's alright. He knows, he knows, he knows the pain. He knows, he knows, he knows, he knows, he knows. He knows, he sees, he sees. I see you, boy. It's all gone. I love you the same. I love you the same. I love you the same. But there is something about dignity that isn't reductionist that affirms the intimate details of a person's personhood. The way they sound, the way they look, the way they walk, but also dignity frames prejudice as a violation, a desecration of God's own image. I think about John Perkins, civil rights activist in the US, he says, Racism is to spit on God's face. And I like that description. I like that description. Because he made man. He made us. So to say, I, I don't like that face. And he made us from dust. We know that. So you're, you're trying to recreate what he made. And I think allowing dignity to shape how we how we view our society allows you to ask the question, how should a person be treated in a way that affirms their dignity? Especially those who are more likely to be mistreated. But also dignity allows you to become a bit much more personal. Because it's often the case that diversity is abstract. It's diverse. What does that mean? It's, it's in the air. But dignity has a way of affirming, affirming, affirming. He's made in God's image. In Zulu, Zulu is a language spoken in South Africa. They say, Saobona, Saobona. It means I see you, Avatar. They copied that avatar, so they did. I see you. My upbringing in Nigeria, it's hard to walk past a human being and not greet them. I struggled in England, how you can walk past a human being and not say anything. I struggled. I said, Dad, it's a strange place. It's bewildering. God bless the Queen. <laughs> Sorry, folks. But there's something about seeing a human person. And what is even most heartbreaking is to see a new phone that has been designed and people are rushing two hours on the line to see an, a device and a human being walks past them. That is disgusting. Not to recognize the wonder. My father is blind, crippled, wonderful man. He takes time to put on his perfume. He's blind, but he takes time. He's crippled, but he, the taxi has to wait for him. He walks with a stick. Too much dignity. He feels, and it's not pride, it's not, he senses that I have words in Christ. Crippled, blind, 
but doesn't complain. Now, if Hitler was alive, he would want him dead. And we often forget that the Nazi logic is with us. It hasn't gone away. People say Trump. I said it's not Trump. No, it hasn't gone away. The idea that if you're older, you should be recycled and disposed hasn't gone away. I love old folk. Dignity. Dignity. You wait for them, no, no. You wait. They don't, they don't run. You wait. Two hours, yeah, you wait. <laughs> Dignity. Not diversity. That's yeah, just... <laughs> Sorry, folks. Let's, let's try and move on. So I think... <laughs> so in terms of... Just in, in concluding, what I would say is... How does this link to race and reconciliation, to bring it back? The relationship between dignity, reconciliation, and race is linked to both the historical experiences of people who have been marginalized. Within the prophetic tradition in the Bible, the prophetic tradition is very, very sensitive to atonement. The Bible is very sensitive to the past. The Bible is too sensitive to the too sensitive to the past. Do this in remembrance of it's too sensitive to the past. It's too sensitive. The modern world likes fantasies. A vision of the future shows it could be an animation, Madagascar, just some kind of future. Ah. Prophetic tradition is too sensitive to the past. And some of us live with the wounds of the past. I had a friend of mine from Jamaica. He told me, you don't know what it's like in my head. You're in Nigeria. You, you still have your name. You still have your language. We're in the Caribbean. We don't have the language. We can't speak our language. We don't know who we are. They took us as slaves and put us here. He told me, you, you don't know what it's like. Just leave it. Just leave it. And I think the question of reconciliation it's not about singing Kumbaya. It's a good song. There is a place to tell the truth and to acknowledge historical wrongdoings. To acknowledge that some of the wealthiest people in this land are slave owners. I know in Bristol you've had your own wrestle with the church. On my way, darling, I was on my taxi yesterday. I was looking at Bristol. I felt that because I, I knew this city was built on the blacks, slaves. When it says it's a nice college, what you mean? Actually, exactly, it's a nice college. But also, there are historical wrongdoings in this city. I, I don't think a biblical response to injustice can marginalize memory. It's unbiblical. For, oh, forgive and forget. Ah, said the Bible. Ah, maybe. <laughs> forgive and forget. It's not there. There's no reference to that in the Bible. It's liberal pretenses. That's what it means to be a good liberal. The prophetic tradition has a way of saying, do you remember who built Bristol? Ah, the queen. Do you remember who built Bristol, really? 
So there's something around recognizing historical wrongdoings, but also being willing to affirm the rights of those who remain excluded. And working for reconciliation, yes, there is forgiveness. Jesus teaches us that. I mean, without Jesus Christ, it is impossible to forgive. But I think also the, the relationship between reconciliation is around also reconciling your privilege with my poverty. Let's be reconciled. That's good. Give me a hug. Wonderful. But not in a strange materially. So reconciliation has to have a material expression. Something that is material. We are giving away 10% of our wealth to those who have been excluded. And I think it's about seeing reconciliation involves the heart, what happens at a heart level. And I can tell you this, um, for a lot of people who don't have white skin, there's a lot of rage. I can tell you this, there's a lot of rage. If I heard there was a race riot, I won't be, it won't be like, wow, are you so, I won't be surprised. Because the rage is in your heart when you see how you're mistreated every day. So reconciliation is the work of the Holy Spirit, breathing into the hearts of those people. Because I can tell you that it's hard to convince a young man who is, boiling with rage not to harm you because of its illiberal it's a good thing to be nice to people that's if you're liberal you can this idea is be nice to people they don't have currency in the social context where people express oppression you can't tell someone who's oppressed just be nice and smile there's this t-shirt um is it stay calm <laughs> oh my goodness bless you but it's, 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 it's good, I'm just, it's a good t-shirt, but you can't, that's not the word. That's not a word for the oppressed. <laughs> that's the word for someone who is privileged, who can stay calm. I can't afford to stay calm when I've been excluded. So in many ways, it's to say that there is a call to be sensitive to the suffering, be sensitive to the disparities, Commit yourself as an act of worship to pursue justice. Don't pursue diversity, you'll be lost. Pursue justice. In doing justice, there is room for diversity. There is room for inclusion. In doing justice. And it's about being aware that, yes, there are historical wrongdoings, but in 2019, we dare not pretend. We dare not pretend that somehow Britain in 2019 is much better in every way than Mississippi in 1965. We dare not pretend that. Because the realities of exclusion, the realities of sin, especially if you pay attention to your 
Bible, hopefully you all read it here. Is it, is it red? Hopefully. I know it's changing in terms of what people read now in theological schools. It's changing, it's changing. I've got to be honest. If you, if you read an example, Chronicles, there was a king, he did injustice. The next king, injustice. There was a king, injustice has a long life. It does have a long life. But the love that comes from God has a way of confronting death. Has a way. So I, I hope that has been useful. Any questions?